Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Tara Black is a New York Times and USA Today best-selling author whose chic Parisian sleuth, Aimee LeDuc, has been praised by Lee Child as one of the best heroines in crime fiction today. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Cara talks about her 18 Murder in Paris mysteries, working with the chief investigator in the Princess Diana inquiry, and why she chose a natty-dressing, whip-smart dwarf as Aimé's right-hand man. But before we talk to Cara, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge-reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find a full transcript of our discussion, plus links to Cara's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. But now, here's Cara. Hello there, Cara, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, nice to be here, Jenny. Thank you. Now, look, beginning at the beginning, was there a once-upon-a-time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction? And if so, what was the catalyst for it? Well, I think at the beginning, beginning, it was about, you know, being readers in our family. Um, My dad was a huge reader. I read all the time, which I think, you know, as you probably talked to other writers, you know, we're readers first. Um, And I maybe I thought, oh, it'd be great to write someday. But it wasn't until I heard a story in 1984 uh, when I was in Paris visiting my friend um, and she told me about her mother who was a hidden Jewish girl in the Marais and um, I just it, it really it really struck me because her mother was 14 years old came home from school one day and her family were gone it was 1942 of course they didn't know what we now know but uh, she stayed hidden in the apartment, uh, thanks to the uh, concierge. And later I found out the concierge's son, who was a French policeman, who, contrary to many, actually helped her hide there until the Liberation and uh, found out her family had gone to Auschwitz. But I found a lot of that out later. But I never forgot that because I, you know... I grew up in California and uh, I never had to worry about, you know, food on my plate or, you know, clothes to wear. Um, So I remember 1984 when I came back to San Francisco and I told my father about it. And, uh, you know, I'd never really met anyone and I had met her mother as well. I'd never really been that affected by World War II personally. Um, Fast forward 1993, about 10 years later. We were back in France, um, and I had a young son, and we stayed one night in the Marais because we were coming back. And I remember I put my son to bed. Uh, He was small, and I went out on the street, and I was looking for that apartment where my friend had showed me in the Marais. And I think I found it. I'm not sure. And I stood in that street. You know, it was 
17th century. And, and I wrote, you know, I thought about my friend's mother and I thought, what if I had been a young mother, you know, in 1942, what would I have done, you know, to, to, you know, put food on his plate and to roof on our head to, to save him? And, and what if what I did then came back to bite me 50 years later, because it was basically 50 years later. So I really was struck by that and um, came back and talked to my dad about it. And he said, you know, that's, you've always talked about that. You need to write about that. You need to write that down. And so voila, that <laughs> started my life of crime. <laughs> <laughs> and now the Aimé Leduc series has been a total hit. You've got USA Today and New York best uh, New York Times bestseller status. Wow. And it's up to 18 books this month, I think. Is, are you still on target to publish the 18th one this month? Exactly, yeah. June 19th it comes out, Murder on the Left Bank. Yep. I can't wait, actually, because I've just finished number 17. What attracted you to the mystery genre? Well, again, it was my father. Um, he, As I said, he was a big reader, and he was always reading. When he retired, he would read mysteries. He would go to the library, like on Saturday, take out seven books and read a mystery a day. Um, and I was like, oh, Dad, how can you, you know, read that pulpy fiction, you know, and, oh, it's too genre, and, and, um, you know, I mean, I hadn't read mysteries like since Nancy Drew. I don't know if you have Nancy Drew in New Zealand, but. Um, we did have her, but she wasn't quite as popular here as Enid Blyton was in the Secret Seven and Famous Five. But yes, we did hear of her. Okay. Well, sort of like Enid Blyton then. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, I thought that was, I don't know. I mean, I liked it, but I was young. And um, so when my dad and I were talking about this, he said, why don't you, you know, write about this? And um, I didn't even have a computer then, okay? So this was quite a while ago. And he was saying, you know, you should do research on it. And I'm like, yeah, and I had to write letters. And he said, um, why don't you, you know, read a mystery and see what you think about that? And I was like, oh, dad, you know. But I was searching for a way into the story, I think. Um, and he handed me, I think it was P.D. James's P.D. James, Unsuitable Job for a Woman, which just opened my eyes, you know. Um, I really realized that her books were sure, you know, you've got this, you know, really plucky yet vulnerable heroine who, you know, had a gun in her purse and wore heels. It was kind of like very cool. And um, there was a lot of social comment in it. And I thought, yeah, maybe I could tell the story with some someone like that. You know, I could use the mystery novel, uh, detective fiction as a framework to tell a story, which is really worked. You know, that's what I like. I want to have a framework. You know, when you talk about just fiction, to me, that seems so big and amorphous. I want to have something that incites the story, you know, a crime um, and the, the framework of an investigation, you know, uh, going down different, you know, maybe false pieces or red herrings and getting clues and putting it together. I really, I really, that really spoke to me as a way to tell a story. Sure. And now you've succeeded in creating a heroine that Lee Child has called one of the best heroines in crime fiction today. So that's a pretty amazing achievement. Amy is half French, half American, and she's got a typically French 
sense of style, even when she's putting on her um, disguises, you're very accurate about the sorts of things she's wearing and what colour goes with what and what shoes she's got on and all that sort of thing. (laughs) And uh, I wondered, have you kind of managed to analyse what the French woman's style really is? And have you even managed to pick up a little bit of, of it yourself over the years? Oh, I, I, I'm not at all like Amy, unfortunately. Sorry to burst your bubble. Um, but I appreciate it in other women. You know, when I was in Paris, I started going back in the 90s. And I had friends and I was, you know, I wanted to write about the current, you know, the modern day young French Parisian who, um, you know, what she was like, what she dealt with. I mean, you know, that tousled yet chic look and putting it all together, yet, you know, being vulnerable and witty and smart and having, you know, troubles with men and because they do. And I I met a friend after work once at a bar and having a drink and a aperitif and she looked fantastic and she's really nice and smart and warm. And, and um, she said, oh, he just broke up with me, you know, and I went, you? I can't believe it, you know, and I thought, my God, if <laughs> there's no hope for the rest of us, but... Um, you know, they're, they're women, and I wanted to reflect, you know, modern-day women, um, people I was meeting. And I also got to, um, in the course of my research, meet a woman who was a private detective. And I really said, well, how do you do it? And she goes, well, it's all about, you know, women blend in. Women can blend in. Women can stand out. Um, and she had a motorcycle and a car with her trunk. Do you call them boots over there? The, you know, where you yeah, in the butt. Yeah, yeah. And she had this boot full of disguises, seriously. And wow. I thought, yeah, how cool is that? Because she could follow somebody on a motorcycle. They wouldn't necessarily, you know, recognize her, you know, with her gear and the helmet. And then switch to her car and then, you know, survey them or follow them and then get out and change her outfit. And I thought, yeah, women can do that. And women can you know, stand out or blend into the scenery, you know, um, they're much less threatening, I think is what, you know what I mean? Than a man would be. Mm-hmm. I also met a woman, older woman who had a detective agency. I mean, she looked like someone's grandmother and she'd been doing it for a long time. And I was talking to her and it was about six o'clock, you know, it was dark. It was like a winter night in her office. And she said, sorry, Cara, I have to, you know, end the interview. And um, I have to go and do surveillance. I said, surveillance? It's cold outside, right? She said, oh, yeah, you know, but I, I'm prepared and I have, I've been doing surveillance all week. And I said to her, well, how could you have been doing it all week? Wouldn't people recognize you by now if you've been there? She said, look at me, Cara. Well, you know, look at me. Do you think anyone knows? She, she looks like your grandmother, right? She said, no one notices me. I'm invisible. And I thought, yeah, you know, that's really true. So mm-hmm. I think it's a strength, you know, that women can you bring to this profession, you know, and also kind of uh, just, like I said, blending in or standing out as needed. Yeah, yeah. Um, Murder on the Left Bank is the one that's due out this month. And the storyline in it, from what I see of the promo, is very much carrying on the the thread that's been going through it all the time about her father's death, he's a policeman, he's killed in what seems to be some 
uh, underground dirty cop thing going on. Mm -hmm. Did you have the full story arc in mind when you began book one? Not really, um, Jenny. I I think that there was always secrets that Amy had, uh, uh, you know, didn't know. I mean, she she knew there were secrets. Everyone had sort of stonewalled her, her godfather, her grandfather. Um, I knew that whatever secrets about her parents, her mother and her father, would be um, something that got under her skin. And she was always trying to, to figure that out, her kind of a driving force, kind of to deal with the demons. You know, were they like this? What was the real story? Why did her mother abandon her, she thinks? And so that was always in the background. I didn't have any full arc, but I, I thought that she's, one of her wounds was searching for family, um, you know, and now she has her own little baby or daughter and, uh, you know, how she's going to come to terms with that. I think that's about as as far as I got in that sort of character arc. And then as as you wrote, the, 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 the details of it started to emerge. Is that how it happened? Mm, yeah, yeah. If something would happen, you know, I would think, well, of course she'd wonder about this or she'd, you know, question this person or she'd want to know more or she'd put this, you know, theory to work and find out it wasn't like that at all, you know. Um, and people lie for different reasons, I yeah. think. Uh, and people always lie is what someone tells her in a story, you know, even for a reason that has nothing to do with the question you're, you're asking as well. So mm -hmm. um, people don't like to talk about the past also. Mm. Aimee's offsider, Renee, I, th I find him very poignant because he's whip smart, he's also very fashionable and handsome, secretly in love with her, and he is a dwarf. Now, that's just really an unusual thing to happen, and you've created a very memorable and appealing character there. You, could, you just have this terrible feeling there can't be any happy resolution for him with the feelings that he's got. How did, how did, him, how did he come to life for you? Well, he, <laughs> he came from a real-life situation, um, but uh, he was a female, actually. In, um, I live in San Francisco, and I used to be a preschool teacher. Um, I don't know what you call them in New, New Zealand, you know, uh, um, before kindergarten. Yes, preschool or uh, before kindergarten, yes. Early childhood, I think, is what they call okay, it. Okay, early yeah. childhood teacher. Um, and I had uh, got my credential, my teaching credential, and I was on the teaching staff of, of a small preschool. And as teachers, we would hire, you know, we'd form a panel and hire new uh, teachers. And I remember I was on this panel with several other teachers and we had many applicants and they were all very qualified. They had all the credentials and one of the applicants was a dwarf. And I remember thinking, you know, she had everything that was needed, but I was thinking she wasn't much taller than our four-year-olds, you know, and Mm. In in that job, you know, it's a lot of physical work as well, you know, dealing with young children and putting materials away and spills and all many things. And um, I was thinking, and this is, you know, I feel very guilty about this, but, um, and it's not something to be proud of, but it was, I felt like, what if, you know, it was physically hard for her? And what if the children didn't respect her, you know, because she wasn't much taller than they were and made fun of her or something? 
So anyway, that's what I thought. I didn't say that, but I remember we all voted and uh, we picked another candidate and I wasn't the only one. So, okay, we hired the other person and I think it was about a month or two later, two months later, I was down at our sister preschool, which was downtown at the time. I had to go for a meeting, teacher meeting, and I went early because I heard one of the teachers was doing this great art project and I wanted to steal their idea. You know, we all kind of do that. And I thought, great, you know. So I went early. I went into the room and we have very low tables so the children could just stand, you know, and you figure they're all all around this big round table and they're wearing smocks and they're all engaged in this project and they're bringing materials and they're putting it back. They're very self-motivated. And I was thinking, wow, that's great. And taking notes. And I was looking for the teacher and... I just kept looking, and then I realized it was the teacher we did not hire um, who was at the table with the children wearing a smock and, you know, working with them, and they respected her, and it was this project was humming along wonderfully, and I was like, oh, my God. You know, I just, it hit me in the gut, and I was like, oh, I feel terrible. I felt guilty, and I realized I had been looking at the teacher's uh, disabilities, not her abilities. And I watched the whole art project feeling, you know, very guilty and realizing that her her class, her children had learned such a bigger life lesson, you know, because of dealing with her and seeing what she could do and how they respected her. So I think I have always felt guilty about that. And I'm assuaging my guilt through the character of Rene because um, when people see him, you know, he's a dwarf, right? And first thing you, okay, and that sticks in your mind. And of course, he is a natty dresser, as you pointed out. He's very smart. He's, you know, he's got so much going for him. And of course, he's in love with Aimé, who regards him as her best friend. So, uh, you know, it's kind of poignant, but that's sort of their history. And it might continue that way. <laughs> Yeah, I guess it's the sort of thing you don't... I, I, in this last book, Aimee comments something about, oh, he's very grumpy today. He he must he needs a girlfriend. And you realise that she's pretty blind to what's going on as well. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally, yeah. But I think that does provide sexual tension, you know. I mean, if it ever came out, I think their whole relationship would change, you know. Yeah, oh, yeah, it might become intolerable for them to be business partners. You just don't know. That's right, yeah. Look, your books are wonderful for vicarious travel, and you've said they're a trip to Paris without the airfares. Um, <laughs> yeah. For people on this side of the world where it's very expensive to get to Paris, it's a, it's a lovely armchair um, trip. So I gather that you actually do record some of the street sounds of Paris. Do you do you play that as a background sometimes when you're writing? Oh, definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, because it's wonderfully atmospheric. You know, I'm sitting in, in a little closet in San Francisco in my little writing nook, um, writing away and wearing grubby sweat. No, they're not so grubby, but you know what I mean, just yeah. at-home clothes. <laughs> and I need to go to Paris. I need to bring the reader to Paris and bring it on the page. And, and so I often do, um, you know, and they're really simple sounds often in the bus. I will put the recording on and on my phone and I'll just hear the, the cadence, you know, of how people talk. And do you know what I mean? It can be something small, but it's yes. 
just yeah. to get that. And it's like, oh, and that brings me back to that bus ride or it brings me back to that cafe when, you know, I had oranged, uh, ordered, ordered, sorry, uh, fresh orange juice and they're, you know, making it through their juicer, those sort of old fashioned ones they have on the counters. And the man had come in and brought, you know, brought in the wine uh, shipment. And then the lady from a, the concierge across the street comes in and complains about something. And it sort of takes me to that moment in the cafe, you know, and that I can't, you know, I take a lot of notes, but I can't remember all that. But I go there with sounds, you know, yeah. I find it really helpful. Yeah. You've also built up an amazing network of contacts. I, I see you make a reference to the fact that one of your people that you spent quite a lot of time talking to was the Brigade Criminal Inspector who was in charge of the Princess Diana inquiry. That yeah. sounded quite fascinating as well. Do you remember what you talked about with that person? I'm not sure if it was a man or a woman because they're a female as well as male brig right. brigade inspectors these days, aren't there? Right. Well, he's a man and he's retired now, um, Jean-Claude Mules. Um, I often see him when I'm in Paris. Um, and I just got back from Paris, but he was in Spain, so I missed him. But often I would, you know, especially when I was writing this story, I think it was in 2007. I mean, when I met him originally, he would, um, he was often a uh, questioned by people, you know, he would talk to movie people or script writers or, you know, to make sure they got the French police procedure correct, you know, or to answer questions about it. So mm -hmm. that's sort of how I met him in that capacity. And I would often, you know, take him out for a drink and say, here's what I'm thinking of. Would that have happened? Would this, would the police do this? Or, you know, what, what kind of, you know, because the system is so different from here. And so he, he would tell me a lot of procedural things, and I used them in different books. But it was in 2007, I believe, um, yeah, was it, yeah, when, um, when he, I met him for a coffee. And I wanted to ask him about, a, I don't know, some specific procedure and just say, would this, you know, what do you think about this? And he was um, very irritated. He said he had just got off the Eurostar from London. And he wouldn't talk English with me because he'd been talking English all morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, okay. So then we had to do it in French. And um, he was very, you know, I said, well, why, why were you in the UK? Yes, yes. And it was like, oh, well, you know, it was this whole thing and these people and these people with these perukes, you know, these wigs and all this, you know. And I'm like, what do you mean? What are you talking about? He was going on and on and yes, and they wore these wigs, and we had to blah, blah, blah. And I'm saying, where, he said, I said, were you in court? Were you in a British court? Yes, yes. And, and I said, but why? What was this about? And he goes, well, it's 10 years. And he kept saying 10 years, 10 years. You know, he was really grumpy that day. And I said, okay, what does that mean? And he goes, well, 10 years, 1997, 2007, the Princess Diana investigation. Right. And I said, oh, well, yeah, but what, you know, what's that to you? And he goes, what do you mean? What's that to me? I was in charge of the investigation. <laughs> and I thought, I've known him about three years and I didn't know that. And I thought, boy, I really need to hone up on my uh, questioning techniques. Do you know what I mean? It's <laughs> <Yeah>. like, <laughs> 
why I never <laughs> thought to ask that or what, you know what I mean? It was, yeah. yeah. So I'm not a journalist. So I was like, oh dear. So then he started telling me about this and it was fascinating. And so I thought when I, I will set my next story or one after that in the uh, 1997, which is when a lot of the stories happened, but in the, the aftermath, because you know, I mean, for this, that went on for weeks and months and years, right? But, you know, it was it was always in the headlines for a long time as this huge tragedy. So I remember I said it a few uh, shortly after, and I could he could tell me some details that he was actually working on, you know. So it's yeah. not part of the story, but Amy would be totally aware of it as the world was, you know, it yeah. was constantly. So that was just this great kind of uh, truthful um you know, information and details I could put in while just being the fabric of the of the story, you know, that day. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that's great about uh, the whole series that you get, and you get those little facts going back in history as well. So look, perhaps just moving away from the specific focus on your books to your wider career, mm-hmm. is there one thing you've done more than any other that's been the secret to your success? I don't know if I have a secret to success. I think when I started writing, I had was lucky to get into a writing class and then into a critique group. But what really struck me was that the first draft is a first draft. You know, I never, you know, expected as I wrote it, this would be publishable or, you know, I always realized from that first um, a teacher I had that you know, it's a process. And I think I learned that from him very well, or I, I could take it in, you know what I mean? We, we all know that, but I could actually uh, accept it and go, I'm just going to write this and I'm going to figure that this is a work in progress as it is. And I will, I will get down the ideas and the story, and then I will go back and hone it for, in however many drafts or rewrites it takes. And I think a lot of people who were in my class or you know, um, people could not, what do I want to say, hold the course or, you know, it's it's about going on and, and polishing and, and making your book sparkle. And, you know, even though that's a difficult process. And I think to write a really good story and, you know, compelling and something you you as a writer need to do that, or at least I do. Um, I, you know, and Voltaire said writing is rewriting and I I really took that to heart so I'm not uh, you know I have no problem with rewriting you know what I mean if it, and I expect that in my process um, sure, but then so I, I don't outline and some people outline meticulously and then the story writes itself but for me that's very difficult uh, that's interesting and so how many drafts would you normally, have for one of your manuscripts or is it more of an organic process than that it feels more organic because as I write um just like before we started talking I was going back to what I wrote yesterday and recrafting it and rewriting it or you know sometimes it's just a line or a word or oh this this story means that this should happen next and so I look back to what I had written what I wrote previously the day before and then I look at that, and then I move on. So I'm constantly tweaking. I don't know. And then sometimes when I have the full draft, I look and then I go, oh, no, this, this, you know, this should go here. And, you know, so it's, it's like nonstop for me, but I do feel it's important to 
look at what I did yesterday and look at it and then move on. You know, otherwise you would be spinning your wheels. You know what I'm saying? So it's a, it's a long, it's for me, it's a longer process than some of my friends who write a very detailed outline. And then the writing itself is very quick. But for me, that, that feels, um, I don't know. I it doesn't feel fresh to me, but everyone's different. Sure. Look, turning to Kara as a reader, because this is called The Joys of Binge Reading, and from what you say of your dad with his seven books every Saturday, he definitely was a binge reader. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> what about you? Do you? Have you been a binge reader yourself? And if so, who do you like to read? Oh, yeah. When I find a book, and it's often, I'll be in an airport, right, on book tour, and I'll see a book, I'll pick it up, and I go, oh, God, I love this, and it's number six in you know, whatever series, um, <laughs> then I go, oh, for me, I like that. It doesn't bother me. Um, and that happened with Deborah Crombie. I don't know if you know her. She's She lives in Texas, but she writes a UK series. Um, and uh, she used to live yes, there. Yes, I have come across her. She's great, actually. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So when I found one of hers, I was like, oh, there's Gemma in her life. And then I went back to the beginning and um, so she was someone who I, I love, and I know her, and I, she's really a great person. Um, I like Philip Kerr, K-E-R-R. Um, he wrote the Bernie Gunther series, and he sadly just passed away this year. Like It was terrible, like two weeks before his book came out. But he has a long-running series, detector, detect Bernie Gunther, and I've devoured all of them. And I have, And after he passed away, I actually went back and started reading them from the beginning again you know kind of like mm -hmm. a grieving process but um, yeah yeah but there are people sure I like um yeah there's someone I like and I read it then I just read all of them as well so yeah. yes yeah so sort of circling back from the beginning to the end at this stage in your career if you were doing it all again what would you change if anything well, I got to change something that I've always wanted to change. Um, uh, it was funny. My editor, when they were doing the 10th anniversary issue of the first book, Murder in the Marais, they said, now's your chance. We're doing reprinting. And if there's anything you want to change in this first book, right? Because sometimes you write the first book and you're sort of stuck with, right, everything. Um, yeah. And so I was like, yes, her age. Take out her age, which was on the first page, because that kind of, limits her biologically to several things <laughs> and I was like no I want her younger I want it a more I want it loose I want no one to actually say so we did unless you have an older version you will never know her exact age so <laughs> who anyone who's writing a series or it turns out to be a series don't get too specific at the beginning because that could nail you down is what I'm yeah yeah so what's next for Kara as writer well, I have a. I've sent the draft of the next Aimé Le Duc, number nineteen, to my editor. So I'm waiting to hear wow. from. Wow. Yeah, and uh, then I am working on an idea for a historical fiction based in World War II, and then another Aimé Le Duc. Oh, great! Oh, great! Now, Cara, where can readers find you online? You can find me. I'm on Facebook. I have an author page, Cara Black Author. Um, you can find I have a website, www.carablack.com, and I'm on Instagram. 
um, you can't get away from me if you look for me. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Well, look, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. And we look with, with interest for book number 18. Thank you so much, Jenny. And, and I have an old friend in New Zealand. I don't know. She used to live in Christchurch named Marg. Marg, if you hear this, hello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, thank you so much thank you thanks Jenny talk to you later bye thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast you can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com we'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next and if you enjoyed the show take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website, That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.